Hey there, podcast friends. Andrew here. I just want to do a quick shameless plug because a little project that I was a part of finally came out and is available for you to see for free. So let me tell you a little bit about it. I was part of a new documentary short produced by the National Film Board of Canada and directed by my friend Jari Osborne called Picture This. Basically, they wanted to do a short documentary about my experiences as a queer disabled person as both a disability awareness consultant and just as as Andrew trying to navigate sexuality, queerness, and disability. And so we spent two years working on it together and a year and a half shooting, and it's gone all over the world in festivals, in Canada, in the U.S., in Australia, and it's won audiences, audience awards, and I'm really, really proud of it, and I just wanted to let you know that you can see it for free. So if you want to see some of what I do as a disability awareness consultant, I know you hear about my sexcapades every week on the show, but if you want to see some of that, you can go on my website, andrewgerza.com, and download the documentary for free, so you can go to andrewgerza.com slash picture this doc and download it completely for free. And then we and then you can just let me know what you think. You can leave a review, you can tweet me about it, you can send it to your friends, you can share it on social media. I think documentaries like this are really important and I was really proud to be a part of it. So it, once again, you can download Picture This by going to andrewgerza.com slash picture this doc. But now, on with the show. Cripple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability, with your host, Andrew Gerza. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza Shining a bright light on sex and disability Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello friends, welcome to this episode of Disability After Dark. I am your disabled dreamboat, Andrew Gerza. Thank you so much for clicking, and I'm excited you're here. This one is going to be a really, really fun one, really, really super important, and let's shine a bright light on sex and disability together. I just want to say that over the last few weeks, I've gotten some amazing reviews of the show from disabled people on Twitter, on the on the iTunes, Apple page, on all the places about what the show means for them, why it's important, how it makes them feel like a sexual being, how they've never heard a show like this before, and how it's opened up their minds to possibilities for themselves. 
I got some reviews that I was so touched by that I had to like stop and like weep for a second. I'm so so touched by this and I really appreciate every review because it means that people are listening to a show like this and I never thought that this show would reach would reach people like this and the more and more I do it the more and more I realize it's not about getting huge numbers it's not about being the number one podcast in the world it's about what this show is doing for the popular for the disabled population and for those people listening how it's creating a space for them I'm so humbled and thankful for that of course I'll just say it, I do want to become the number one disability podcast out there. So if you want to leave a five-star review about what the show means for you on iTunes, I won't stop you, but whatever you want to leave, thank you for listening to the show. One more quick shout-out. I got a $5 Patreon donation to patreon.com slash content last week from my good friend Adam Kearney. Adam, you pop the kernels of my heart for making a donation like that to this show. Thank you so much. You pop my triple kernels, and I appreciate it. If you want to get episodes of the show one day early, and you want to get special bonus content, you can also pledge $1 or more a month to patreon.com slash content. One of the things that I want to put on the Patreon, and one of the things that I was doing kind of as a, a side project to this was the When I Was a Disabled Kid podcast. I produced one full episode and put it out there, but literally nobody was listening or downloading it. After like a month, we only had 100 episode, 100 downloads, and I was like, well, that, I'm not going to put time into that if no one's going to listen, but I do want to keep that alive because I got some amazing interviews and I want to make sure people can hear them. Um, and I want to, people were really interested in the show, so I want to make it part of the Patreon page and if you pledge one dollar a month or more i want to allow you to hear the episodes and continue making mini when i was a disabled kid side things as part of the patreon so um i'm gonna do when i was a disabled kid as a patreon thing for one dollar a month or more and if you and then i'll release them on the feed i was thinking maybe once a month i'll release them on the feed as like a special thing so that it can still be a part of of this brand because I think it's really important and they were fun interviews to do and I don't I don't want to lose that I, I liked doing that it was fun and, and people were when I announced that on Twitter people were like yeah it's a great idea so I do want to make it something that we still have access to but put it under disability after dark uh, on the patreon for like f- for for one dollar a month and then once a month put it live on the feed for everybody to hear um, that's kind of the plan uh, okay, so I think I've rambled on enough. Again, if you want to pledge, patreon.com slash content, And let's get the show started. First things first, I'm recording on my brand new computer, which I am so excited about because everything works, and it's super fast, and I, it's just really great. So, so TMTM, TM, thank you, Apple, for having, you know, these computers. Unfortunately, they cost millions of dollars, but they work really well. So I'm super happy about that. Shameless plug. Uh, what else do I want to tell you? Oh, my IBS isn't flaring up this week, which I feel like is an important thing to tell you because many times when I've recorded this episode, I've been almost on the verge of shitting myself in my wheelchair. So this isn't happening this week. So yay! If you're an IBS, a person living with IBS and disabilities, I feel you. I know all the feelings, and I got you. Anyway, (laughs) now let's get the show started.
One of the things that I've wanted to do on the show for a long time is I've wanted to tackle intellectual disabilities and sexuality. I was really concerned about doing it, though, because I am not somebody who identifies as having an intellectual disability, and I felt it was irresponsible of me to put on a show and not talk with somebody with a disability. Now, I preface that to say the guest I have for this episode works with individuals with intellectual disabilities, specifically around sexuality, and has experience in that field, but also does not represent the intellectual intellectually disabled community but they work with them and they had some great insight on how to how to introduce and talk about sexuality with individuals living with intellectual disabilities and I think that's a topic we don't talk about enough and so many people have said to me Andrew I'm working in a you know I work as a manager for a group home how do I talk to intellectually my intellectually disabled clients about sexuality and so for this episode I reached out to somebody who I met on Twitter Galia Godel, who works as a sexuality educator around intellectual disabilities, and they were like, I want to come on the show and talk about this stuff, so I immediately said, yes, please, let's do that, and so we had a great conversation about how to talk about intellectual disabilities and sexuality, how to bring it up, how to talk about consent, intellectual disabilities and sex, all this stuff came up, it was a really fun conversation, and I want to invite you to listen to my interview with Galia Godel right now on Disability After Dark. Hey, Galia, how's it going? It's great, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark. Um, I'm just, I'm really happy to have you. I just think it's so cool you're here because I found you on Twitter and I don't know how I found you, but I found you because you had cool glasses on, which you're wearing right now, <laughs> which I think are so cool. And I was like, I immediately, I was like, I don't know what this person does, but I like them. That's so delightful. I think I found you by following some other people. So I only recently made myself a sex educator Twitter, and I sort of went bananas. I was like, who should I follow? And I like followed five people, and then I went to their profiles, and I like let the Twitter algorithms tell me who to follow next, and just yeah. like spent a day following like 150 people, and you were one of them because you're doing fantastic work in disability and sexuality. That's amazing. No, I, I literally saw your picture, and I was like, I like their glasses. They seem kind of retro and kind of nerdy and weird like me. I will like this. Stuff. That's delightful. Ah, I feel so pleased. And then because you're so your website and the work you do is under cerebral sexuality. Um, so I thought I was like maybe they have CP, maybe they have like. So I, I actually thought you first had cerebral palsy, and I was like maybe they're one of us. And then I realized that you didn't. Alas, no. It was just a name that I came up with after brainstorming for a while with some friends. It's a pretty awesome name. I dig it. Um, so on that note, hi, tell Hello. us about Galia, tell us about who you are, uh, maybe give us your pronouns, your preferred identifiers, and, and then just tell me a little, bit about, a little bit about you. Oh, that's great. So I am a queer Jewish sex educator from Philadelphia. Uh, I am polyamorous. My pronouns are she and her, and I live in a lovely giant house with my polycule and two cats and a dog. That sounds so the opposite of what one might assume a polycule is. Really? It sounds like, well, when I, when like, I know a little, bit, a little bit about it because I 
I and I, I know very little about it, but when I hear polyamorous, you think like swinging, you think all this stuff, which we all know is not true. But like you don't often hear, yeah, I hang, I hang out with all my couples and with my in my big house and our dogs and we're domestic and that's like what. Yeah, people think that we're, we, like, have crazy sex parties, but really we're just like, oh, can you pick up zucchini? I forgot to go to the farmer's market. <laughs> and then maybe after the zucchini, we'll have a good, some cuddle time, and then maybe sex. Is that kind of how that works? Um, Not really in our house. We are not. We don't really do much. N- none of us are, are grouped in, like, a, a, a 2D shape of relationships. We're all just sort of a wavy line. I, oh, nice. I've got a partner who lives a few blocks away and one partner who lives here. And then their girlfriend and their girlfriend's girlfriend. And that's oh, nice. all who lives in the house. Nice. Um, so before we jump into the disability stuff. So I'm also Jewish. Hello. Oh. Uh, and I love talking to other Jewish people because we're just such a great, we're just, I love it. So, we're, the, we're the best. Yeah, really we are. <laughs> and I love talking to people who are culturally Jewish. And so it's like, how does polyamory and Judaism fit for you like what how does that go together for you culturally religiously hmm that's a really good question I don't think I've ever thought about my oh that's so like I I grew up very Jewish my mom is like a rabbi's daughter my dad's Israeli you know I went to synagogue every week and taught Sunday school for until I was like in finished with undergrad yeah um and Mostly, and I, I don't think relating to her Judaism, but my, my mother was always very supportive of my relationship styles. I remember, I remember, oh gosh, it must have been like nine years ago at this point. I had been dating this guy long term for like two years at that point, And I came home from a weekend away with another guy and he was going to like spend the night. And I told him to go upstairs and put his bag down. And my mother just very casual, non-judgmentally, <laughs> she was just like, so does does Joe know about Jay? And I was like, oh yeah, definitely. And she was like, okay, great. Have a, have a good night. Just, just checking to find out if just I was cheating. Like no that, judgment. Yeah, just, you know, there it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and now I'm part of a really progressive social justice oriented congregation. That's largely queer. I'd say it's if, if half, if not more queer people in this congregation, our rabbi is trans all of the founding members are just like marvelously diverse. Hold on, your rabbi's trans? Yes, that's, he's the best! That's, wow, blows my mind. That's amazing. Can we it's be best friends? so fantastic. Oh, yeah, he's the best. Everybody thinks he's just so cool. And we just like follow him around like, what are you going to say next, Rabbi Arilev? <laughs> that's so great. Um, yeah. You know, and because my experience with Judaism was very fractured, I... I'm Jewish when you talk about lutkas and gefilte fish and like the and like you know the food, but do I know when the Jewish holidays are? Not really. Um, did I have I been to a synagogue? Probably like twice in my life. Um, yeah. So I'm not at all like it's not a faith that I follow. Mm-hmm. But culturally, I'm very proud of my Jewish heritage. I just don't. Mm-hmm. I just don't have any connection. And I think part of that is because they don't. In my experience, when I was younger, anyway. And the limited times that I was there, disability wasn't something they they did super well. Yeah, I I really can imagine my my home synagogue was accessible for physical disabilities, but it wasn't a topic that we talked about really. Like there was an elevator, there were doors that opened on their own, the bathrooms were accessible, but there was never any mention of like 
the physical barriers that someone might face when trying to get involved with something in the synagogue. There weren't um, conversations. Actually, let me take that back a little bit. There was always like systems in place to make sure that people who had hearing aids could like hook into the system. And there were people who would describe things to you if you're visually impaired. Yeah. But I, I don't think it felt like a very active part of the conversation. And maybe that's just because it's so strongly contrasted with my current synagogue where just the the smallest thing that really strikes me is during the prayers when you're supposed to rise the rabbi says please rise in body or spirit that's great i i just love that and it's like you know we're we're not here to judge what your body is doing just you know come into this prayer with a sense of of uprightness and like facing god or facing what we're talking about that's really awesome because i mean when i was a kid like i remember going to to the synagogue to do, to, to like learn Hebrew. And I just remember feeling, and I was the only kid in a wheelchair there. Mm-hmm. And I only did it for a brief time because I wanted to, strangely enough, I wanted, I wanted to, to be with this boy, not like, not like in a sexual way, but I wanted to be like friends with, mm-hmm. I wanted to have Jewish guy friends and they were all learning Hebrew. And I just was horrible at it. Couldn't read the things. It's a really tough language. And then, they they didn't when I would say things like oh I have to pee or I need help or I need I need assistance like they didn't really provide that mm-hmm. so it just I just remember feeling like like the the religious that that part of my Judaism was never really there and then when I like my my father would say stuff like oh we're having we're having a bat mitzvah for one of your relatives but the space is not accessible so don't come. And I'd be like, well, that's cool. Uh, okay, great. They, they didn't specifically choose accessible spaces so you could attend this family event? Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> that's my full dad for you. Hey, Pops. Uh, <laughs> Gosh. My stepdad's fantastic. But my, okay. my like, my full dad is the, the Jewish one in the family. Like, the the full, well, I guess I am fully Jewish too, but he, mm-hmm. he was the original one. And so, like, he just never made. He never made an effort. So my sense of of disability understanding in the Jewish culture is really fractured. Um, I'm a huge nerd about that. So if when we're finished recording and we're chatting sometime, I should send you Judaism and disability links that I think are really rad. Yes, please, because I'd love to know more. Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe it's, maybe there's a great strength that I'm not seeing. I don't know. Uh, so I will say it has a lot to do with movement, something I feel really grateful for in having found the Reconstructionist movement. Not not to say that Reform, Orthodox, and Conservative Jews don't also look at disability, yeah. depending on the congregation, but one of the core values to Reconstructionist Judaism is inclusivity and accessibility, and so all of the rabbis that come out of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College are just like super focused on accessibility. That's awesome. I also love that we started this conversation completely on the other side of what we're talking about. <laughs> it's true. And it's only because we're both super Jewish and that's, that's I, I like, I love that so much. That's um, <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of accessibility and disability and stuff, I kind of love your work and I love that you go by cerebral sexuality and I love that that's your thing. Um, and when I, like I said, when I was looking at your stuff, I thought you might have CP, I thought you might have disability of some sort. And then I realized that you don't. Uh, I, am, I am not disabled. And you, and so you, you mentioned that to me just now. And so I was 
not I was I wasn't surprised, but I was curious how, then like because you have the privilege of not being disabled and you have all the privileges that come with that, how did you come into this work? I came into this work because of my sister. My younger sister does have disabilities. She has uh, intellectual disability and autism and ADHD and I love her very dearly and I, I never want to play like the, uh, the I've savior. got a disabled sibling. Exactly. That's not my, that's not my jam. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm a loving older sister and the thing that really struck me was that we both went to a pretty progressive high school that had a, a fairly comprehensive sex education class <laughs> as, as comprehensive as you can get for a suburban school in the mid aughts, I guess. Um, and I found myself quite well served by that curriculum. I, I got out of it the information that they wanted me to learn, whereas my sister did not. She had this sex ed class, and I spoke with her about sex afterwards because I've always been a sex nerd and happy to talk about it. And I realized that she didn't pick up a lot of the information in that class because it was not tailored to her learning style. And where classes like math and English, they had those for students in the special ed track that were tailored to their learning styles, sex ed is considered such a, a minor learning uh, topic that they didn't bother tailoring it to their students with disabilities. And so she didn't get the education that she needed. And so I started sort of excitingly figuring out how I could give her the knowledge in a way that matched her learning style. Um, and sort of meanwhile, uh, I discovered how badly I wanted to go to school for sex education just because I've always been a sex nerd. And by the time I finally got to my graduate program, I had spent so much time interacting with my sister on this topic that I was like, well, obviously I'm, I'm going to be doing sex education and intellectual disabilities. It, it, this is where I'm passionate, it turns out. That's so awesome. So you like, what I like hearing about that is that you do have a personal connection. So it wasn't, so you don't come into it in the savior motif in any way because you're like, I don't want to save anybody, but I want to make sure that people like my sister can have a great sex life. And it's awesome that as her sibling, you see that as something that's viable for her. And if you can, if you can help create, like I like, so, so, what you created, like I looked over your website just just before we started talking, and it's so easy. It's so easy to follow. It's so simple, and there's not much to it. Which is which for anybody wanting to learn about disability and sexuality, that's great. Uh, it really helps that I kind of talk to everybody like I'm talking to seven year olds. I was a camp counselor for seven year olds for years and years and years, and that's just sort of now ingrained in my communication style. So whenever I need to teach something, I like break it down to the component parts and I'm just like, here's an introduction, here's the knowledge you need to read further. No, that's even for me, like that's, that's I need to be like, walk me through all the things step by step because sometimes I get lost too. So it's, that's, that's a great, that's a great uh, learning style. And it serves me really well with my clients because it means that um, so I, I do um, workshops on how to teach other reproductive and sexual health providers how to work with clients and patients with intellectual disabilities. Yeah. And the thing that I stress most is the several different forms of repetition that work to like, so you like state a concept, define that concept, attach that concept to something meaningful in their life. So like give them examples. And then once they have a solid understanding of that concept, only then can you move on to being like, so like 
we're going to talk about your uterus. Your uterus is the part of your body where the blood comes from when you have your period. And remember we were talking the other week about whether you wanted to use tampons or pads. Well, that's a conversation that has to do with the blood that comes from your uterus. And once they have strong the concept of the uterus, then I'm like, and so we need to go to the doctor because the doctor thinks there might be something wrong with your uterus. And so that's why you have this appointment coming up. So I don't want you to be confused um, about why you're going back to the gynecologist only a month after you just went. It's because that part of your body needs some more attention paid to it. So it's really getting the client to see that, to connect sexuality to concepts that are tangible for them and that are important. Absolutely. Abstract concepts are so difficult for my clients. So if, if I don't have an immediate hook to their life, then I need to find some other way to make it concrete and tangible. So drawing pictures helps. Role playing is really helpful. Also, they've got to be part of the experiential learning cycle where they are engaged in the information that we're sharing between us. And I think like, I think that I think that making it tangible for everybody is good for everybody to have it be like if we were taught sex ed, all of us, but especially disabled people in a way that was connected to our lives every day. So if it were me, I'd want somebody to, to connect it to my experience of attending care and my experience of my body being touched by other people and my experience. Like I'd want all those things connected to how you're talking to me about sexuality because that's my day to day. Yeah, absolutely. I sort of, that's the second half of the um, work that I do as a sex educator. So the one is taking the existing topics and making them accessible to different learning styles. And the other is recognizing that different topics need to be taught. We assume that a lot of students just sort of pick up how to date on their own. But like, <laughs> that's, that's not true. It's really hard. I mean, I think, I think typically developing students should also be taught how to date. Yeah. Like somebody, somebody, <laughs> somebody teach me how to do the thing. Cause I, I would not get a passing grade right now. If you were like, go, go on a date, I would be like, cool. Can we talk about bread? Like, I'm yes. <laughs> Oh, that's, yeah, exactly. So uh, there are, and, and also just like public versus private behaviors is an important one for my clients. I had a client who got arrested a couple months ago from masturbating in public. And so clearly we had to break back down why that isn't okay. Cause he's not a, a bad guy. He has impulse control problems, but you know, that's a, that's a huge thing that is problematic because it's illegal. I mean, he got arrested. It could be scarring to children. It's damaging for people around. Yeah, of course. And so we had to go all the way back to the basics of like why it's not okay to pull your pants down in public. That is <laughs> so much of my work. My, my, my like naughty brain wants to be like, well, there are places where, but I hear what you're saying. Right. Um, but I can also understand why that client might feel that way because they they're probably so restricted in their day to day life in their like in the way they're treated sometimes that maybe that's their impulse is to be like I'm gonna just fucking do it and then whatever. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it kind of stinks that now this client is um, like there's there's law enforcement involved and now he needs to have someone. Uh, he needs one-on-one supervision so he can't like just go out and walk in the community by himself anymore, which is like really restrictive. He can go where he wants, but someone's got to be hanging out with him the whole time. And it's, it's not a pleasant result. And so we have to move all the way back to basics of like, okay, you, you need, uh, we need to find you healthier ways of expressing 
your sexuality right now. And does like for you as the educator, does that feel does knowing that you have to like take something kind of away from him? Does that feel weird? Like that would feel hard for me to be like, you're just doing this thing because that's how you're feeling, and I have to, in a nice, polite, constructive way, kind of take that away from you because I don't, I want you to be protected, but in a free world, like, I'm not saying that you should go out there and just start jerking off in public. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying, like, because he's just, he's probably, again, had so many restrictions on him, like, that must feel hard for you as the educator to be like, okay, I now have to politely talk you, talk you, to, and I'm, I might have to politely take this away from you because I have to. So something, a little bit of input is I'm only a behavior specialist. So I didn't make the call about his new one-on-one supervision. His house staff took care of that. Okay. I just sort of get brought in. They're like, this person has a behavior, fix it. And I'm like, ah, that's not quite how it works. <laughs> I, I cannot fix anybody. What I can do is tell you how to change your behavior around clients to change the stimulus that they're experiencing. Yeah, to see if the stimulus might make them change their behavior. Right, exactly. Um, there is the really unfortunate history of like ABA applied behavior analysis, which is just like making someone do the same motions over and over again and training them how to behave in public. And that is bullshit. Um, Ethical behaviorism is changing the stimulus. So for this client, um, we're doing a couple things. He gets more dates with his girlfriend now because he needs a way to express his sexuality. Uh, I also come more often. And this was actually very funny. I walked into his house the other day and he said, Oh, it's the sex lady. I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> all right, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Because, I, I mean, it's something that I, I press to this client is that not everybody wants to hear you talking explicitly about how you had sex with your girlfriend last night, but I do. I am <laughs> the person that you can always talk about sex with. Other uh, people, you have to check and respect their boundaries. But, like, yeah. listen, if I walk in the door and you want to describe your girlfriend's genitalia to me in detail, <laughs> great. I'm the sex lady. As long as, you know, she's comfortable with you doing that, hopefully there's consent there on some level. There probably isn't, to be honest. They don't – neither of them are extremely verbal communicators. Okay. Um, but what's sort of different in the – intellectual disability world is that information sharing tends to have less consent attached to it, which isn't ideal. Um, it definitely people should learn to check in before they share details. And I, I let my clients know like, Hey, you never have to share anything with me, yeah. but I also would never want to tell them to keep secrets. Yeah. That's, that's and, almost worse. Right. Exactly. So I would sort of prefer that they, you would sort of, like, let, you would sort of let them share and then, and then, Oh, like overcorrect that versus like, don't say anything ever. Don't ever say that. Right. And, and I can also provide, um, attention and feedback to only the things that I think are appropriate to talk about between us. So if he's talking about his girlfriend genitalia in detail, and then like is talking about how his genitalia hurts and I'm like, Oh, like, let's talk about that. We should, we should fix something. Like, are you, are you, are you using lube buddy? Like, let's go there. <laughs> That's a, that's a that's a valid valid question all valid questions really no but i think i think i just i love the style of the way you do it and i love that you're going really directly into that stuff because we don't we don't talk about intellectual disabilities in popular culture and if we do it's done in such a infantilizing inappropriate way um and especially if we talk about sex all we seem to focus on 
is the inherent risk associated with them being sexually active and nothing else. So my question right. is, like, when you're working with an intellectually disabled client, how do you, how, how would you instill a sense of agency in them? Like, hey, you can be a sexual person. Yeah, you can totally, like, I'm going to be, I'm sure you wouldn't say it like this, but you can be, yeah, you can totally fuck that person. But also, like, how do you say, like, hey, let's, 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 there's pleasure in that. Like, it's, there are risks, yes, and you should be made aware of ABC, but it can be fun, too. Like, it's not all, just because you're an intellectually disabled person doesn't mean your whole life is risk. Absolutely. So something that I try to do is disconnect sexual pleasure from sexual risk with them and make them both differently tangible objects. Like one of my clients had unprotected sex and had to have the morning after pill. And we were like, okay, let's talk about the things that need to happen before you can safely have sex. Like you're 98 pounds soaking wet. If you got pregnant, it would be very dangerous for you. Therefore, if you want to become a person who regularly has sex, you need to talk to your doctor about some kind of hormonal birth control. And also we're going to learn how to use condoms. That was a very interesting appointment with that client. Actually, her, her house manager called me and was like, uh, client had sex yesterday and like, doesn't even know the word condom. And I like immediately on the way to the appointment, I just detoured to CVS and got a box of condoms <laughs> and, a, and a bottle of lime juice because it was the most phallic looking object in the CVS. <laughs> it's all I could find. I like didn't have a dildo sitting in my backpack, which I would have, if I knew I was going to do a condom demo. Amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, like, how do you? So, like, how? What? So, if you were talking about risk versus pleasure, what, how would the conversation change? So, as soon as, um, as soon as um, clients talk about the restrictions placed on them, I, I very swiftly, I say this to all my clients: you are an adult, and you get to make your own choices. Good. If you want to have sex with this person, we are gonna find a way to safely make it happen. Good. Um. And and that's something they all know that, which is really nice. They all, all my clients, I've got about 15 or clients or so have um, at the moment have very ethical staff and very good support coordinators. And they all know that they are in charge of themselves. They are adults. They get to make their own choices. Um, it, it's really wonderful. I was relieved when I found out that that was very common. I didn't think that was so I Because in my experience of care, and again, completely different models, given that I'm, I'm, solely talking about in my experience of of being physically disabled the model is like oh my god sex is a secret like let's whisper about it and be weird but like it's nice to know that in this instance they have agency they have there, there's a comfortability there because i wouldn't think so yeah I, I mean there are problems sometimes so like another of my clients i i, I walk into her apartment and this is this actually just happened a couple weeks ago and she was crying and angry at her staff member and like dragged me into the back room to talk about how mad she was at her staff member that the staff members are keeping her boyfriend away. And usually when a client says something that's very dramatic, I'm like, let's talk this through. There might be a misunderstanding here. And often there's a misunderstanding. Like, you know, clients have thought that their caregivers were stealing money from them and they weren't. And like, but this time the way, you know, she was telling it, I'm like, it, wait, it does sound like your staff are keeping him away from you. Let's break this down and find out what's going on. So I talk to the staff and they say, yeah, we don't want her boyfriend coming over because they grind on each other and like hump each other in the living room. And I said, well, are are they allowed in the bedroom? No, if they went in the bedroom, they'd have sex. Yeah, yeah they probably would. She's not ready to have sex. And I was like, well, that's not our choice to make. Client is over the age of 18. 
client can have sex if she wants to. You can't keep her boyfriend from her. Like, yeah, she totally shouldn't be humping her boyfriend in the middle of the living room. That's that makes you uncomfortable. And as staff members, you are entitled to not experiencing sexual content you don't want to experience. But then you need to let client go in the bedroom with her partner. Yeah, totally, totally. There needs to be a space where they're allowed to be a, a person. Yeah, and and that is pretty uncommon. And thankfully, the the management in that house is now a little bit more permissive for this client, which I really appreciate. But the rest of my clients, they know that they can have friends of of gender of different genders over if they want to. There's not a whole lot of info about same gender relationships, unfortunately. But they can, you know, they're they're often told. Yeah, you can have sex if you want to, but only if you're ready. No pressure. It's a choice that you get to make. Um, they often have very close relationships with their staff. So a lot of my women clients, if they're like, oh, I think I want to have sex with my partner, their staff members will be like, okay, that's fine if you want to. Why don't you tell me why you want to have sex with him? And if they say something like, because he said if I don't have sex with him, he'll break up with me. They're like, oh, no, honey. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's totally, that. that like, my own my own ignorance is like kind of being shattered here, which is awesome. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that it's not as like archaic as I once thought. I'm glad to hear that it's becoming more progressive in the area of like care staff kind of giving a shit because so often you don't see that side. You see the care staff freaking out, and then you have to deal with the fallout of that. Right. I should say, I only see clients whose support coordinator deemed that they need a sexual behavior specialist. Okay. So I probably have a really um, specifically targeted sample of clients who are having a sexual experience or a romantic or friendship or social experience or something. I, I sort of have a whole umbrella of specialty. Yeah. And the support coordinator said, okay, we need support for this client. And then I'm secretly like, haha, client is fine. This is support for you. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> totally what it is. When, when you when you, when you come in, do you sit down with the 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 support staff first or the manager first and be like, "Hi, I'm gonna talk to this client about sex today." Like, what do you like break down their fears? Yeah. So usually the first conversation. This is generally how it goes. I speak with um, at a big table with my client and whatever staff want to be present, and everybody talks to me about what they think is going on. And it's usually a kind of uncomfortable conversation for client, but they need to know that I'm here to talk about things very frankly. Yeah. Um, and, and that I'm always going to be a person they can talk about things with frankly. Then I will have a full meeting. So it's like a, it, it takes like four meetings to establish a rapport with someone. So then I will have a meeting with just the client and I'll be like, Hey, this is what the conversation at the table happened. I know it's not always really comfortable to talk around so many people, why don't you tell me your side of, of what's going on right now? What are, you know, did what they said feel true to you? Did you feel frustrated about what they said? Where, where are you right now? And then after a few more meetings with client, I'll go back to their staff and be like, okay, like break down to me what you think is going on. Cause I've got one picture from clients. Let's see if I can build out a more yeah. fleshed out picture. Yeah. Um, and now you, when you say client and staff, it sounds like you're, you're talking mostly about individuals who live in group homes. Do you, is that commonly the, the environments you're in when you do this stuff? Uh, about half and half, I'd say. Half of my clients live, um, I don't know if I'd call it a group home. Some of them are in apartments with, one, usually it's one other roommate and then like two staff members on shift at all times. Okay. That's the, that's the usual breakdown. That's what a lot of um, uh, residential organizations sort of have as the best way to promote independence 
while also maintaining care over clients. Yeah. Um, I don't see any clients that are in like facilities. Well, I did in my practicum, but not in my practice right now. Yeah. Um, so all of them are either, uh, I've got a couple clients in their own apartments. I've got a couple clients, um, that live with a roommate and some staff members. And then I also have some clients that live with their families and they feel fine about that. Yeah, tell me a little bit about those, like coming in for that kind of stuff. How, like, cause, uh, cause, yeah. know, <laughs> families can be interesting and, and a lot more personal than like, the thing about working with staff is that there's a bit of a, there's a there's you and the staff and the clients, so there's a bit of a barrier there. With the family, it's like so in, you're in. So how do you, how do you as a, an educator, um, how do you deal with all that? Uh, it can be really tough sometimes, but also supportive. So the parents generally don't want to hear explicit details about their kids' sex lives. They're just like, Galia, are they being safe? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to give you personal details because what we talk about in our appointments is is private, but I, I wouldn't worry if I were you. Um, or I, I might say, hey, I need you to reinforce this thing. Um, you know, please please provide this kind of in- input more often because client needs such and such help. Um, but I, something I take very seriously is the confidentiality of the conversations I have with my clients. I'm not, yeah, I, I ask their permission before I put personal details into the progress notes, um, which is tough sometimes to, when it's like a really tough issue. Anyway, um, I'll come back to that. But sometimes the families are awful. I have a client, a trans woman who was being absolutely emotionally and physically abused in her house. They didn't respect her gender. And whenever she tried to talk about her gender, they would abuse her. Oh. And it was extremely upsetting. Of course. And sort of, she lived there for the first nine months that I worked with her. And she's in her, her late 20s. This, it's, this wasn't a short-term experience. Uh, and all of our conversations were just like, listen, your support coordinator's trying to find somewhere else for you to live let's just find ways for you to survive the next year. And it really sucked. I was doing a lot less behavior stuff and a lot more like I am the only person acknowledging your gender right now. I'm the only person that we, that can like talk about makeup and validate your experience as a woman. So I just like met with her every other week and just like went out and she had a lot of feelings of me and I validated those feelings. And that's what, that's what she needed. Like the thing that was, so horrible about her behavior was that she was in this abusive situation and like she definitely has behavior problems she's aggressive she scares people she hurts people but gee and, i wonder why like gee, right, exactly why well, wonder why You're- <laughs> <laughs> she's finally living in an environment that's not abusive in the same way her family was but they're still not validating her gender they're like oh male client name you look so pretty in that dress and wearing that makeup you can wear whatever oh, you want no. and i'm like so it's like no matter half what a step she- better yeah but like no matter right, what, like you're not in physical danger, which but. is good. But also, like no one is is letting you be who you are. Exactly. So something I'm doing with this client is I'm taking her to trans support groups in the city, and I just actually on Friday I had I, I was so anxious to make this phone call, but I called her support coordinator and I was like, listen, her ISP meeting is coming up in a month. I need you to come into this. I need you to walk into this meeting using feminine pronouns in the name that she has chosen because her home, the homeowner and the um, recreation staff member are not using those pronouns in this name. And one thing that they said to me is because you're not using that. They're like, well, if support coordinator doesn't have to, I don't have to. And I was like, 
support coordinator, and I need you to back me up on this. I can't be the only one using feminine pronouns for those clients. Yeah, let her. Oh, that's so tough. It's really tough. It's so um, tough because that's who she is, and and these these support programs like there needs we need to have much more conversations about sexuality, disability across all of these systems to allow for different gender expressions and different pronouns to be used. And just because you're disabled doesn't mean you have to go by a certain thing just because the other person that's caring for you is afraid to do that. Exactly. And and one thing that's tough is a lot of people who are like, listen, I'd be fine on trans issues, but like, client has an intellectual disability. What does she know about trans issues? And I was like, first of all, whatever someone says their gender is, that's what it is. No questions yeah, asked. Yeah, so you can't, you don't get it, you don't get a say in what it is because it's what they said it is. Right. And second of all, when I walked into my first meeting with this client, she was like, hello, I'm a transgender woman. I know that I'm beautiful. I know that society doesn't love me because of my gender. I know that someday I will find acceptance and we'll get to wear what I want and I'll be a beautiful woman. And I was just like, oh my God. I'm so glad <laughs> I love you so much. <laughs> right. I was just like, I don't know where you found this information online, but thank God. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Completely. Like, good for her. Bravo, client. Yeah, I, I love her so much. And like, it's frustrating that she has these these really aggressive behaviors that cause her to not have the best future that she could have if like, if she didn't have these aggressive behaviors, she would be in a much better day program. She would have more people to hang out with that don't want to run that won't run away from her. But like, yeah, I'd be aggressive too. I'd flip over chairs once a week. If people I definitely would do that if people didn't know if people wouldn't use my proper pronouns and wouldn't call me by my name. And hey, PSA to all the supports I've out there. Trans disabled people exist. It's okay. Boy, okay. Yeah, like, we're <laughs> they're out there. It's it's good. You're good. Um, so yeah. uh, okay, I'm not. I don't know how to segue into my next question, but I'm just gonna go right in. So, um, depending on the type of of neurodiversity and intellectual impairment of the person you're working with, does that change the way you explain things to them? And you kind of alluded to this earlier. So you obviously go. You have you break things down, but does does it explain? Does it change things like about? Like when I explore consent, I talk about how no means no does mean no, but yes also means yes, and there's consequences and and things that happen with both things. And so I really talk about like I talk about the power and privilege structures and all those things. Does 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 the type of neurodiversity or intellectual impairment or disability change how you discuss all that? Yes, and it has a little bit less to do with their diagnosis on paper and more to do with what our interactions look like. Um, however, whatever level they rise to interact with me, that's where I need to meet them. And so some clients, we can just sit down and have a really frank conversation. They are, you know, uh, capable enough at caring for themselves that they can, you know, like take the bus to our meeting and they have a job and they play video games and you know like you wouldn't know that they had an intellectual disability just yeah. interacting with them in plain hand and so what they need for me is just to talk them through these tough situations that would be tough even if you didn't have a disability and they just need someone to bounce ideas off of and some of my clients need us to break it down even further like um this one client her ex-boyfriend just kept calling her over and over and over and over again it made her really upset that 
he just like wouldn't leave her alone. And the approach that she needed was to just validate that her being upset was okay. And then to turn to her staff and be like, hey, tell him she's not home. You don't stop that. Like, yeah, you don't have to pass the phone. This isn't it's not like you're restricting her social contact. She's told you that she hates these calls. Yeah, she's having agency and saying she doesn't want this. So like, so yeah. So depending on the type of, intellect, of intellectual disability, you like, and it depends on their personality. It sounds like you're able to like choose how to talk about consent based on what they need. Yeah, something that I I do a lot of. I speak very quickly, as you've maybe noticed, and I use a lot of I use a lot of metaphors in my everyday speech. Uh, and I, I, admitting, I did notice. I did. I was, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, making myself slow down and admitting that I misspoke or spoke in a difficult way is the most important thing in my job. If I say something and I'm like, did you get that? And they're like, no. I'm like, I'm so glad you told me that. You're right. I explained that in a way that wasn't really helpful. Let me take this all the way back to the beginning and let's try something else to see if that fits you better. And I will just keep checking in with them and doing knowledge checks are another thing that's really important. So I'll try to explain something to them. And if they say, uh, I didn't get that, or they aren't able to give me the information correctly. It's up to me. They, it, they didn't learn wrong. I taught wrong. So I will just explicitly say to them, like, wow, I'm, I must have used words that weren't really useful. I'm so sorry about that. Let me try to find some words that'll help you more. That's I'm I really like that as an educator, you own that you you own your fuck ups a little bit because you being a non-disabled educator, kind of teaching to them comes with its own like the way that that the way that that can be framed can be framed like i'm again the savior complex which which we talked about earlier but like the fact that you're able to say like hey i i fucked up here let's start again oops it's probably really validating for them have you had any clients who who have said to you like hey you're not like me why are you teaching me this like get me somebody like me no not exactly i do have one client that talks about the difference between her having a disability and normal people. She's like, well, my boyfriend is normal and I'm just really glad that he's willing to date me even though I have a disability. And I was like, oh, let's totally back this up. Your, first of all, your disability has nothing to do with your like desirability as a partner. You have wonderful qualities about you, which is what attracted him to you. Um, and, and second of all, normal isn't the right word for people without disabilities. Everybody's brain is different and yours happens to have these specific needs, but nobody's normal. Everybody's different. Yeah. The thing that's different about you is just that you need help in these specific ways. Um, and that was one situation actually where I disclosed my mental health issues. I have a lot of anxiety and I've recently been struggling with depression. Me too, and I, high five. Hey. Yeah, yeah this, this summer was butts and I had some really bad situational depression. Um, Me too. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I try really. I don't share my personal life with my clients, and they know that. Sometimes they'll ask me probing questions like, "Oh, is your boyfriend picking you up?" And I'm like, "You know, that's not a question I'm going to answer." <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, I just thought I'd try." Because I'd be, uh, <laughs> I'd be the worst kind. I'd be like, "Tell me everything. I want to know all your stories." <laughs> um, but with this client, she clearly. Oh, there was. She was concerned about being addicted to her ADHD medication, and I was like. No, like I take medication also. And she was like, but you're normal. And I was like, that's let's let's back off from that word again. Because yeah. like here I am educating you and I take medication. So I think that means that the medication that you're taking can't be all that bad. And we like 
broke down the concept of addiction to drugs versus the helpful boosting of doctor prescribed medication. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other times it's helpful for me to do any disclosing, um, sort of rather not, uh, you're not disabled. Why are you teaching me? But when I have LGBTQ clients, sometimes they're like, what's that lady got to tell me about? Like, Who's, who's the straight lady coming in and talking to me about my girlfriends? And so those are times that I, like, I don't really want to disclose my sexuality to clients, but, but I will, like, drop hints if I know that they need a queer mentor in that way. So I'll be like, oh, you're going to Outfest next weekend? I used to go to that all the time. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Right, like, yeah. wink. <laughs> I'm one of you. Don't worry. We're doing it right. together, but I can't say it explicitly because work. Yeah. Right, exactly. So I just like, I make it really clear that I am also queer so that they can have these joining experiences with me because it's it's so valuable when you're uh, like a, a an LGBTQ person without a, a, a role model or a model of what it yeah, can look yeah, like yeah. queer. Like this client only watches like really horribly depressing lesbian shows, like the, all these prison shows with lesbians. And I'm like, oh, please watch some Steven Universe. Yeah. Or like, you know, <laughs> even the L word from the early 2000s. Like, let's go. That, that's, I mean, it was depressing, but it was like, it had some moments of levity. Let's do that. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so do you, would you have anything, any other thoughts on how consent impacts intellectual disability like because it's so nuanced and it's so it's so much more than just yes and yes and no is no is there any other ways that you explain it to an intellectually disabled person yes so that's actually one of the really big differences between my um just sort of far-reaching sex education work and my client-focused sex education work is i'm a firm proponent of um explicit consent versus enthusiastic consent like you don't have to be excited about sex if you know why you're doing it in really clear ways um, whereas with my clients who need more concrete, uh, guidelines, rules are very helpful for them, like self, self-existing rules, not imposed ones, but easy flowchart paths for them to make yeah. decisions. We do yes means yes, no means no, and maybe means no. And that is different from how I teach to typically developing learners. Mm. Just because I, it's so easy to coerce or manipulate someone into sex who has an intellectual disability because they can be very easily convinced that someone is right if they speak about it in a logical way. They've spent their whole life looking up to other people as authority figures. And so if someone comes in and presents himself as an authority figure or just a more knowledgeable figure and is like, no, totally have sex with me. It's the right thing to do right now. I want to give them a clear internal rule that if they're not absolutely feeling it and super stoked, then it's a no, don't have sex with that person. That's a great rule for everybody, whether you have an intellectual disability or not. If you're not super stoked, the answer is no. Well, so actually, I I will say, with my typically developing learners, I'm not on board with that. I think there are a lot of reasons to have sex that aren't the wild abandon that is sexual arousal. Like, what if you're trying to get pregnant? And you're like, ugh, I don't really want to have sex tonight, but like, (laughs) ugh, I'm ovulating. Fair. And, you know, for me, sometimes it's like, I'm a little bit depressed and I don't really want to hang out with you. But, I mean, your dick is nice and so, all right, like... Right, like, endorphins are great! Let's have some oxytocin! Maybe for 20 minutes I won't want to cry right now, so, like, (laughs) sure. (laughs) But that is not what I want to do with my clients. I want to make sure they have agency, that they can excitedly uh, interact with their bodies in that way. Yeah. Especially because they have a much more limited ability to process 
their own emotions and I don't want them experiencing sexual trauma as a result of having sex that they didn't want to have. Of course, of course. And I think sexual trauma for intellectually disabled people is such a thing. We're talking about it more and more, but no one's really still talking about it. So I'm glad that you're trying to curb it without... Like, do you sit and talk about trauma with... Not not to, like, trigger them, but to, do you, do, are you talking about that stuff? Because I feel like we should be talking about it more. I open the door for the conversation and let them decide if they want to step through. Like, mm-hmm. I have a client who was sexually assaulted a lot in her past and does not want to talk about it directly. If we try to talk about it, she'll scream and rock and run away because she really hates imagining these. Like she doesn't want to think about time. Um, of course, upset. nobody wants to. Of course. Yeah. But we can slide it in. So like when I had this conversation with her about yes means yes, no means no, and maybe means no during this conversation, she was like, Oh, well person I had sex with last week, totally had consent. And I was like, great, I'm so glad. And the person from four years ago in New Jersey didn't. And I was like, no, it sounds like they didn't. You're totally right. And we just moved right past it because she didn't want to dwell on it. But I validated that that connection to our current conversation about consent and the fact that what she experienced was sexual assault. Yeah. And I only bring it up because you, with all the Me Too stuff that came out recently, you, I heard, there was a bunch of stories about intellectually disabled women being raped and abused and having no, ha, people couldn't, co- they couldn't communicate that to their families or their, or their caseworkers because nobody knew how to talk about it. So I guess my question was like, do you get in there enough to make sure that's a part of the conversation? When it's, when... Yes. And it, it usually I'm the one having the conversation. Yeah. They're... The things I can do with their staff members is change the way they treat the client to change the client's behaviors. Yeah. I usually, like my job isn't clinical, it's behavior, and I'm not supposed to be doing clinical work. But God, it's, it's like 60% clinical anyway. And my boss warned me about this before I started. I wasn't like dropped in the deep ends. Um, but it really is just a lot of helping them with coping and processing because that's going to change their emotions or yeah. their behaviors, I mean. Um. And so I end up being the one, they're like, oh, I had sex last week. And I'm like, great, let's talk about how you felt about that. Uh, I need that. Can can I, like, can we? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm on board. Can we become best friends and help? Like, cool, I had sex three hours ago. Can we talk about how I felt about it? Because Yes. <laughs> um, no, I just think, I think, and so do you think there need to be more discussion of, like, intellectual disability and sexual assault in the Me Too area? Like, is that something as, as an educator in this field you'd like to see more of, or you think it is something? Yes. One of the problems is the amount of work it takes to come out with a story of having experienced sexual assault. Yeah. We, we know, you know, very clearly as sex educators that there is no benefit in coming out other than catharsis and engaging with people who have had the same experience as you. Right. It's hard it's triggering, it's, it brings up trauma, yeah. it makes people hate you. Um, and that is not a path that my clients have the like the wherewithal to go through generally. Um, so it's tough because you, like, and I'm only saying that because I want, I would advocate for it as much as I could because I want the public to know that it happens so we don't keep sweeping it under, under the rug. But it sounds like, how do you do that without re-traumatizing a person every time? Like, uh, uh, what, 
One thing that helps is articles about that. There are extremely explicit statistics that say that people with disabilities are like 300% more likely to be yep. sexually assaulted in their life than people without intellectual disabilities. Yep. And and we, you know, the ways that we've gathered this information is by having conversations with clients who may not have processed it as trauma. Sometimes they're like, oh yeah, he had sex with me while I was asleep and then we went to the zoo the next day. And I'm just like, okay and like i'm writing that down i'm gonna put that in red marker <laughs> right like and even if they don't consent to me put it in, in the progress notes i keep it in my personal notes so if it ever comes up in the future and goes to court i'm like yes client told me there it is four times over the course of three months same details every time there was no inconsistency i just i want people i like all the articles that i read it at right after me too were so disturbing because they would tell their like it was like oh my 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 daughter told me a piece of the story and she has an intellectual disability and so you get a piece of that sensationalized and I would ju I just wanted to be more like having these conversations as tough as they are to be out there in the in the public eye like we know the stats I want to hear not that I want to hear but I want the the like emotional raw stuff to be out there so that we're not just a stat anymore so that people are like oh that's a thing that happened to a president and it affected their life. Okay. I, and I'm really on board with that conceptually, but I think my clients have a really hard time processing trauma, which is such a necessary thing if you're going to come out with a story like that, that if one of them who had both the ability to connect with the internet on that level and the wherewithal to vocalize their assault wanted to make a statement, I'd support them and help them write it in whatever they wanted yeah, to do. Yeah. But I would never bring that up and it doesn't occur to them to, to broadcast their experiences like that. Yeah, I know, and again, these are just my clients. They're incredible dis uh, disability advocates who have intellectual disabilities who are speaking their truth every day. Yeah. Um, but specifically the people that I'm working with, their cognitive ability and their ability to process complex trauma is not such that I would ever encourage them to go over this for anything other than like trying to put someone behind bars. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I wasn't suggesting that we sensationalize it. I just want it sure. to be, like, out in the public eye so that it's not, like... Because every time we talk... If we do talk about sexuality and intellectual disabilities and risk, that it isn't hush-hush all the time. It's like, yeah, this stuff happens all the time, and these are the stats, and this is a real-life example to put to that. Now let's start really talking about it. Yeah, and I'm super on board... Again, I'm super on board conceptually, and if, I think some of my articles touch on that sometimes, and I have more writing to do about that in the future... It just might be a tough dream to see happening. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit, because I was also looking at some of the other work you do on your website. Uh, and you talk a lot about, quote, healthy relationships. And I was curious about that, because so many of us in disabled relationships, whatever they are, struggle with healthy relationships. So many of our relationships are not healthy because of ableism, resentment over care, physical power dynamics like I'm a wheelchair user and a lot of my lovers are not wheelchair users so I have to rely on them for stuff um do you have any tools on how to bring in discussions of ableism into our ideas of healthy relationships let's see I think one way that that comes up for me is I if my if my clients have romantic partners 
I don't have to, but I like meeting their partners to see if I can suss out what their motivation is for dating my clients because my clients are all incredible people and they deserve partners who think that they're incredible. But sometimes they date people who aren't diagnosed with intellectual disabilities. And so I want to make sure that they're not in relationships where they're being taken advantage of or being used for sex or for money. Um, And I have had experiences with with, uh, both kinds of relationships with non-disabled partners, with my clients having relationships with non-disabled partners. Um, Generally, if they're Generally, if their partner doesn't have a diagnosed intellectual disability, they are either borderline or they probably should have been diagnosed but came from a lower income school district that didn't test them for an intellectual disability. Okay. And they are functioning on the same level as my clients and their relationship is a very equal one. So it's impedible, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, the times when that isn't the case, really I've only had one client who was dating an entirely, like a person that I felt probably had typical cognitive ability. It wasn't the healthiest relationship. She was giving this, her partner, all of her spending money. And like, he just wanted to have a lot of sex with her. But also this, we we do harm reduction as much as we can. We can't solve every problem. So like when she wasn't with this boyfriend, she'd elope and have unprotected sex with strangers for money and run away and get sick and not take her diabetic medication. And like, it was a whole bad story. And we were like, okay, she's giving 20 bucks a week to this guy. And he's like making sure she's fed and giving her weed. Okay. At least we know she's safe. (laughs) Right. Isn't that, that's the kind of work that has to be done sometimes is like, how can we make sure a client is maybe being taken advantage of, but not dying on the side of the road. Yeah. And so you have to choose, like, do we want them to be dying on the side of the road or Yeah. Uh, when I when I posed when I wrote that question, I meant like just generally. Oh, I'm so sorry. But I mean, I love I love I like your I like the whole. I'm I'm keeping that in. I'm not gonna take it out. It's a, it's a great like piece. But like generally, if you were to sit with a client who was like, hey, because I noticed you also do stuff around communication on your website, and you have like sessions for that. So if somebody was like, hey, so I wanna have like I wanna have a healthy relationship with my partner. But I, but I'm worried about ableism and I'm worried about this kind of stuff. Like, have you had clients come into you and say like, this is a thing that I'm dealing with, or couples, or like, have you had? Is ableism, is ableism a part of the communication thing that you talk about, or is it something that you can build into like discussions? Not very. None of the clients that have come to me so far have identified as disabled, either physically or cognitively. Sometimes the things that come up are differences in ability to access care or ability to do tasks. Like one of them might have chronic pain. You know, they don't identify as disabled, but they can't do the majority of the housework. And there's resentment and guilt in the households because of that. One of my clients recently had like a surgery and was feeling really isolated and needed ways to feel more connected to her partner after being isolated from having this surgery. So the thing that I try the hardest with my clients is to make sure that there isn't these huge paragraph long lists of resentment that make someone feel buried and unable to respond, which while it's a valid way to express being upset, 
isn't going to bring you to a productive solution. It's just being like, ah, I'm really upset. Yeah, yeah. That if you want to work towards a solution with your partner, you sort of need to triage where you can make the biggest changes with the smallest, like the biggest effect with the smaller change first to take the pressure of resentment off of you before we can slowly move into rebalancing your relationship. So like for the relationship where one partner couldn't do the housework, we just sat down with their budget and found a way for them to hire someone every two weeks to like scrub and vacuum the house that could take that pressure off of them while they renegotiated how they might be able to do labor in that relationship. So, th- so you're really kind of broke it down for that, which I think is great. I'm just wondering if there's a way that like, and again, I don't, I don't even know if this is a question that, that works anymore, but like, is there a way, and I guess cause no one's brought it to you, you don't know, but like, I just, I would love to see more, Again, and the, again, I guess it's based on the clients, but like bringing in stuff around ableism, bringing in all that stuff, like, and it's hard because you can't just bring it up. It has to be like, it has to come to you. But I guess because when I saw healthy relationships, like that triggered something in me, like what's, who, who's deciding what's healthy? Like how, like sure. how, how does that all manifest? And like when you're disabled, what is healthy for you may like totally unhealthy to like, a non-disabled person. I guess the the simplest way that I would break that down if we were going to talk about ableism relationships, which yeah, I, I think just hasn't come up in my practice as a communication coach yet, um, is making sure that no one feels coerced and making sure that no one feels resentful. I think those are probably the most basic And that's, that's a great t- building th- thing to talk around disability because those are two emotions. That come up hugely, that yeah. Are hugely, that are always happening with disabilities. Like, do you resent me because I'm disabled? Do you like even in one-off, one-night stands? I'm gonna suck your dick and I'm never gonna see you again. Relationships. It's like, did you, did you, was there resentment there? Did you enjoy me? Was there like, was there, was there a power struggle there? Like, so I guess. And and is there coercion? I'm disabled and you're taking care of me. Do I feel obligated to have sex with you because of that? Yeah. Yeah, or do I feel obligated to let you have sex with me because I might not have sex for... If I say no, I might not have sex with you for six, eight months after this, or I might not have sex with myself or with anybody for six, eight months after this, so I should take advantage of this opportunity. Even if I didn't... Like, we were talking earlier about sex I didn't want. Sometimes it's like, okay, you're not exactly my type, but I... You know, I might might say yes to this because it's sex that I want to have, and... I may not get to have it if I, if I say no for eight months. Yeah, and, and that would be, if that came up in one of my sessions, I would just want to break down the concepts of resentment and coercion. And if neither of those are there, even if it's not this joy-inducing sexual connection, if you don't feel, you know, traumatized or upset by it, then it's fine that it happens. We don't have to have every part of our lives be, uh, you know, joyful and exuberant. Sometimes they can just be something that you wanted. And I think that's, I think that's great for disabled people to hear about pleasure. You don't. It doesn't have to be disabled sexual pleasure. It doesn't have to even be pleasure. Sometimes it can be just sex, and it's okay to have just sex. Because I think when you're disabled and you're having sex, we're because we don't get it very often. A lot of us, at least in my case, like. 
I have made inroads to get it more often, um, and I have things in place for that to be happening, but I wouldn't for a long time, and so to know that I can just have sex because it's sex and not, it doesn't have to be, oh, yeah, I had sex is kind of nice. Yeah, uh, one of the ways that I approach it with one of my client's staff members is that client wanted to have sex with her boyfriends. She'd never had uh, consensual sex before and was like really excited to have it with this partner. When I talked with her, I was like, well, why do you want to have sex? Well, because I think it'll bring me closer with my partner. And I was like, physical pleasure? Is that one of the reasons you want to have sex? And it was very funny. She was like, no, that's not why I'm having sex. Like, don't label me as someone who's just doing it for myself, Galia. I'm doing it for my partner. And I was like, <laughs> oh, mm, let's talk about the clitoris. But also, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, I brought in a, a vulva model after that. And we talked about, because she was like, oh, I can't masturbate. That would be like, gross why would I touch myself and with a with a young person if they were like if she were like 14 to 18 I'd be like hmm let's step back a little bit I don't think I I don't think you're in a place where you should be engaging sexually with another person if you're not interested in engaging sexually with your body with your with your own body that seems like a really integral step before you can have pleasure with another person yeah but with this client she is an adult she is she's over the age of 18 she has what feels like a moderately healthy relationship. If the reason she wants to have sex is because she thinks her boyfriend wants it, like, fine. That's She's really enthusiastic about it. Yeah. She shouts about it all the time. I want sex. I want sex. I want sex. <laughs> like, all right. That's it. And, and I had to talk with their staff and they were like, she's not ready. And I said, that's, that's not our call to make. She is clearly, yeah, she's literally marching around the house yelling about how she wants to have sex. I think we can see that it's enthusiastic. Like, yeah. we got to let her go. Yeah, and I, I just, I'm picturing this person like running around their house screaming, "I want to have sex!" I think it's great. Um, so, but kind of to to circle back around to why you started doing this work because of your relationship with your sister. How has all of this work you've done has it strengthened your relationship with her? Yes, she texts me a lot of questions. That sometimes I'm like, "Oh, what a good question," and sometimes I'm like, "I I love you so much, but you're my sister, and I didn't." need to know that about you <laughs> like if you like you were taking earlier like the difference between staff members and family members it's a little bit like that with me and my sister where i'm just like i'm so glad you're experiencing joyful sexuality but like i'm related to you <laughs> um <laughs> but i don't say that to her because i don't want her to ever think she can't come to me with questions no of course of course not but inside your brain you're like oh god right <laughs> brain bleach um this has been such an amazing conversation. Uh, if you could end off on, if you could give advice to sex educators who maybe want to get a toe wet with disability and sexual and sexual education stuff, specifically to intellect to people who want to work with intellectually disabled populations, what is the, your what is the advice you give them to get started? Because people are people want it, but they're terrified of what to do next. Uh, I'm gonna recommend two books actually um oh where's the other one i can't find the title darn it i might not have the title of the other one uh, a book that's really helpful to read for educators is already doing it by michael gill subheading intellectual disability and sexual agency which is all about getting caretakers parents staff members teachers over the hump of their own resentment or discomfort with the idea of their charges or learners having sex basically their own ableism exactly uh, yeah you, you phrase that yes that is yeah. exactly what it is 
Um, <laughs> and the other step that I would give is try to get feedback from your learner on what they think that they need or they don't understand. So for example, I might ask someone, you know, do you know how a condom works? And they say, yes. And earlier in my career, I might be like, okay, you know what a condom works. Great. Let's move on. And now I go, okay, can you explain to me what a condom is? Can you explain to me how it works? Can you show me how it works? Because they might just have these buzzwords that they've heard in a sex ed class and not the depth that they need. Yeah. So, and I mean, good teachers know this also. You always have to check for retention and understanding. It's just like doubly important with our with our learners with intellectual disabilities. And and so, what advice would you give to an intellectually disabled person who wants to learn about sex? Like, like, and like, <laughs> again, that's a really broad ending question. But give me like the bullet points of like I would suggest they do this. Um, if you'll give me one second, you can edit out the silence. I'm gonna find. Uh, a title of a book that I have. Um, it's a it's a workbook for intellectually disabled people. Goodness. And I don't just oh here we go I found it. It's called Boyfriends and Girlfriends: A Guide to Dating for People with Disabilities by Terry Cohenhoven. Um, it's just, it's honestly a workbook. You can write in it or you can ask your staff member or family to write in it for you. And it sort of will help guide you through the idea of starting a relationship with a partner for having sex. What I would recommend is making sure that you and your partner are on the same page for what kind of sex you want to have. Because remember, oral sex is sex. Using your fingers on your own body or somebody else's body is sex. Keeping your clothes on and touching each other can be sex. Make sure you're on the same page as to what you and your partner both want. And find a staff member or parent or adult that can give you advice that you trust, who won't just be like, ew, you shouldn't be having sex, but will be like, willing to consider your questions and give you some help. Awesome. Galia, this is such an amazing hour with you i could do like five more <laughs> um so how do people get a hold of you well they can find me on twitter um at sex cerebral where i share anonymized amusing anecdotes about my clients and i yell about disability and i talk about the work that i do <laughs> um and they can also find me at my website which is www.com Cerebral-sexuality.com. Don't worry. All of this will be in the show notes because I would forget it otherwise. So I'm going to write it down and have it in the show notes for when this airs. Galia, <laughs> I just, it was so, thank you for. What a pleasure. I love interacting with you. You're so pleasant and friendly and funny. It's so nice. Well, that's so nice because I didn't feel super friendly and pleasant when I started out today. So I'm glad, I'm glad that I feel that way now. I'm sorry your morning sucked, but you rock, and I like talking to you about Judaism and sex and disability. I love that this conversation started over. Ju like we started, we started on the completely different other side of the. Other oh my side. gosh! If you are ever on the east coast of the U.S., you should come to my synagogue, and we'll all talk. Well, I'm in Toronto. I'm not that far from you. Like it's. Yeah. It's the audience may or may not hear this part, but it's we'll figure it out. I feel like I should come to Toronto because like half the sex educators I follow on Twitter are in Toronto. How are all of you there? We're, I mean. You probably know some of the same people. Uh, 
Anyway, <laughs> this is a great conversation. I'm going to turn off the thing now. We can talk more after I turn it off. Okay, bye. Bye. That was an amazing conversation with Galia Godel talking about sexuality and disability and around intellectual disabilities. I was so glad that you wanted to come on and be have a really frank conversation with me as an educator and what we need to do to ensure that intellectually disabled individuals living with that experience feel heard and feel sexualized positively and have good experiences. I do also want to extend in any invitation to anybody living with intellectual disabilities to come on the show and tell me their stories word for word. I want to hear from you because we don't hear enough about people with intellectual disabilities being sexual and having sexualities and I want to hear from you. And so if you want if you're somebody living with intellectual disabilities and want to come on, email the show at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com and I would love to have you as a guest. But this is a great primer and a great start and I thank Galia for coming on. I will put all of her information in the show notes. And that's the episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to be a part of it, uh, send us an email. Send us stuff for Minnesotes. um, Leave five-star reviews about how great the show is. All the things. Thanks for listening to the show that shines a light on sex and disability. Disability After Dark. Bye. All right, so that's another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. I'm, of course, your host, Andrew Gerza. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of this. If you want to follow my work, you can head on over to www.andrewgerza.com or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza. You can also follow the Disability After Dark podcast on Twitter by following Pod. You can also follow our Facebook page, facebook.com slash disabilityafterdark. It would also be super awesome if you could leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts so more people can hear about the show. And if you are able and want to support the show, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash content. This way we can do, do things like get better equipment, You help me make a living doing this thing. You help support content made made by and for people with disabilities. So I can't thank you enough. And you can pledge whatever you can and as little as $1 a month to make it as financially accessible as possible. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again next time right here on Disability After Dark. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Crippled Content Creations 2018